Welcome to the latest edition of the Moses and Methuselah podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, and with me today, as in every edition of these podcasts, is my friend and professional sparring partner, the author and fund manager, Peter Simon. In this series of 10 podcasts, we will be discussing a number of the big themes that are currently preoccupying the financial markets, in which we have both been professionally involved for the best part of four decades. A tour of duty that prompted us to choose, very much tongue-in-cheek, the title of this series. Are we wise or simply old and set in our ways? We leave you to decide. Well, this week, Peter, I thought we would move on to talking about a topic that is a great topical interest and fascination to uh, to many of us, which is to talk about the character and behaviour of politicians, and in particular, what kind of standards we should hold them to, uh, with particular reference to you know what it might mean for the welfare of the nation over which they preside. Uh, it's, of course, a, a very topical subject in the UK at the moment because we're recording this on uh, on a Monday and over the weekend, our health secretary, the cabinet minister responsible for the health service and for the UK's response to the pandemic, uh, has resigned. Um, reluctantly, it has to be said, he didn't go immediately, but he eventually resigned after he was uh, caught on a uh, on a CCTV camera in his office at the Department of Health having a passionate embrace with a with a lady who wasn't his wife uh, and who had recently not so long ago been appointed as a non-executive director of the department of which he was the head and they've been friends for over 25 years so there are lots of aspects to this story but the one that really i think caught the public imagination was the fact that as the health secretary during the pandemic he has been the minister responsible for the policy of lockdown and uh, social restrictions and so on, which meant that, you know, whereas he was in his office uh, uh, passionately embracing uh, a female colleague who was not his wife, uh, many people across the country have been told and been enforced by law that they cannot actually, you know, kiss or hug their grandparents, for example, if in certain conditions. So there's a charge of uh, hypocrisy, there's a charge of misuse of power and so on, all these aspects circulating around this particular issue. And you have to say it's not the first time that politicians have been caught in this kind of situation. So I suppose the place to start off with is by asking a kind of absolute question, which I'll ask you first, Peter, which is, you know, what standards should we hold our elected politicians to? Do we want them to be uh, exemplars of pure virtue or are we prepared to tolerate uh, lapses, shall we say, in their behaviour and personal values? Good morning, Jonathan. It's nice to be back. I think the answer to your question depends on the country that you're in. For example, if you live in in France, it's perfectly normal for politicians to have affairs and the press doesn't go after them. They, they close their eyes and look the other way. And you've had notorious examples of politicians having affairs, having illegitimate children. And uh, the approach by the public and by the media is one of shrugging the shoulders. In Germany, it's a little bit different, if you like. Uh, but I suppose in Germany, I can't think of any particularly or similar scandals to the Matthew Hancock scandal. In the UK, of course, one expects the highest level of integrity from one's politicians. And that includes not telling lies. But of course, if you scour the, the last 50 years of British political history, 
I think it's uh, probably no more than on one hand that you can count politicians that are really conviction politicians and who who are not in it just for the, the next year's votes or for the perks. There aren't many in any country, but uh, since you were mentioning the UK, I can think of very few. I think Mrs. Thatcher was the last one where you could, whether you liked her policies or not, but you you couldn't really say that you didn't trust her uh, from a personal point of view. And that's important because the fish stinks from the head notoriously. And in this case, um, for the health secretary to have resigned, he should have resigned, I think. There's probably no, no alternative because he broke his own rules. He, was, he should resign because of the stupidity of allowing himself to be caught on camera in his own office. I can think of few things that are more stupid than that. And obviously, he was guided by his emotions or whatever. But I do think that the fish stinks from the head. And I think that the his boss, the prime minister, the prime minister's track record in that area is pretty dismal. And so it creates a sort of confusion about, you know, should Hancock have resigned? Should he not have resigned? Should he have been fired? If so, why wasn't he fired? And you get all this distraction from what's going on in a country or what's going on in, a, uh, in the real world. And I would say that I expect the highest level of integrity. I would also say that you don't get, there are very few high caliber, high integrity conviction politicians left today compared with the past grandees, of which there were many more. And I lament that because it means that the whole level of politics, the whole level of debate has sunk and in terms of the real tough questions, when the politicians are asked really tough questions, I, I don't find that they've always told the truth. So my answer to your question, Jonathan, is yes, I think one should expect the highest level of integrity. Do we get it? I don't think we do. But the level of tolerance depends on which country you live in, or even which continent you live in. In the US, it's a slightly different mentality. In France, the press isn't allowed to go after the private lives to the same extent as the, as the tabloid rags in the UK. So it's, it depends from one country to another, Jonathan. It certainly does. But of course, if we're talking about the kind of morality of the situation, it's not really kind of quite enough to say, oh, well, in one country, it's OK. Another country it's not. Um, because, as you said, in the UK, we have a very active, very competitive, some people rather, uh, shall we say, uh, destructive press, which uh, does hold <laughs> politicians to account in a way that isn't true across uh, the rest of the continent or most of the rest of the continent. And you're right, there are lots of examples of, of politicians uh, from all countries who have done things. And it's important, I think, to distinguish a little bit between what it is we're talking about here. I mean, so it wasn't true 50 years ago. You're absolutely right. In general, these days, kind of sexual peccadilloes are not regarded as being that being regarded as something which is, you know, up to the individuals concerned, as long as it doesn't uh, you know, affect their ability to do the job. Uh, and I don't think that's actually why Hancock was uh, forced to resign. It was in more the uh, the clear implication that there was, you know, which has been a big theme during this pandemic. There's one law for the, the people in charge and there's another law for uh, everybody else in the public. And that is what I think people find intolerable about the current situation. Uh, and we had that example, you know, a year ago when uh, one of the members of the advisory committee 
uh, on the pandemic, the scientists, uh, he was caught breaking the rules that he himself was had recommended to the government. And uh, Mr. Hancock was very rude about him at the time and said it was intolerable and he should have resigned. Uh, and of course, he's got to be held to the same standard himself. And that, I think, is what people really sticks in people's craw is the fact that those in power see themselves as exempt from uh, the same laws that they're making for other people. So I think that's the worst part of it. As to lying, well, I think that's, that's slightly more complicated because, you know, we all know that there are circumstances in which politicians and statesmen and members in government have to, if not to lie outright, they have to um, be what uh, one famous English politician called the economical with the actuality which is to make a you know a very carefully worded answer that doesn't quite amount to a blatant lie, but is uh, equally not the whole truth and certainly nothing but the truth. So I think we do need to distinguish between the kind of things that we're talking about in terms of character. Uh, you're right, uh, Mrs. Thatcher stands out as someone who I don't think anybody would accuse of uh, any kind of lapse in behavioural standards. She certainly wasn't one for... Uh, adventuring outside marriage or for, you know, fiddling her books, fiddling her taxes or anything like that, uh, which is another issue I think that people find very uh, distasteful when they come across it. But then you look back in our history and you see people like Churchill, who was certainly not immune from criticism about his personal behaviour. He was often drunk and uh, he was a gambler, you know, with his own and with other people's money. And uh, indeed, for a while, he was prime minister after the war when he was clearly suffering from dementia and um, you know the whole government lied not to reveal that fact whether that was for the good of the nation you know who's to decide that um, so I think it's quite complicated uh, but I look across at the continent and I think um, well you know there are other other issues of corruption and and so on which is a big problem today yes and it's not going to go away you often think well if there's a new generation of politicians coming up and you suddenly find the parliament is full of new faces, then you can hope, against hope usually, but you can hope that there will have been a, a, a cleansing out of the bad old ways. And I suppose that if you have the same party in power for a long, long time, and the UK is an example of that right now, then you tend to have sort of fatigue and... Um, and you find that there are no new ideas coming through and that they're all getting too lax and that one needs, if you like, a cleansing out process to bring new politicians in who are running the country. Germany is quite an interesting example of that right now, as a matter of fact, Jonathan, because there is going to be a very important parliamentary election in September and Mrs. Angela Merkel will be leaving. She's already no longer the the chairman of her party. She's been replaced by Mr. Armin Laschet, whom we don't know yet very well. But that is going to produce a whole lot of, I think, changes. And the changes are going to be important because Germany is probably the most important country in, in Europe, in the European Union. So I think we need to watch that space very carefully. The same thing is happening or similar thing is happening in France, where we've just had regional elections, the second round over this weekend. And the traditional left and right parties made big gains. And uh, Mrs. Le Pen suffered big losses and President Macron also suffered big losses. Now, whether that's midterm elections where the incumbents are punished or not, we shall see. But th these are important things, just like 
you mentioned on the pan-European front, what should we make of the fact that uh, the Germans and the French want to cozy up to Vladimir Putin, but they've been given the thumbs down by the rest of, of the EU. So I think we are at an important crossroads there. Um, and I think that the original question of whether, to what extent we can tolerate um, economies with the truth or downright lies, or to what extent should the public shrug its shoulders at um, the moral peccadilloes of the people in charge, I think that's a conversation that's, gonna, that's going to go on forever. It's always been around. I don't see why it should go away. But I do think that it's important what's happening in the UK, what is happening in Europe is also important, and not least what's happening in the US. I think there, the new president, we all thought he was going to be relatively weak with um, the big rivals like China and Russia. But lo and behold, he seems to be maybe a little bit tougher than we thought. Or Iran, for example, you saw over the weekend that the Americans... They launched an airstrike against um, Hezbollah facilities on the Syrian-Iraqi border. I think in order to show the new president, they, they, I always find it very interesting how they call them conservatives. You know, people like the new Iranian president who has a, a very long and very substantial track record of executing people. He's got a lot of blood on his hands. But he's called a conservative. It's just like the old communists in Russia, uh, the Ancien Régime, what always called the conservatives. It rather kind of confused me for a while. Um, so there we shall also have to wait and see how President Biden is developing, because certainly the Chinese are not going to go away. They're not going to get any smaller. And certainly the Russians are not going to change their mentality, their imperialist expansionary mentality in the region. And so bottom line is that we need Western politicians who are of moral integrity, who don't lie, and who have convictions, and who have the courage of their convictions, rather than backing down at the last moment and creating a vacuum. Because those people that we just mentioned, the Putins and the Xi Jinpings and the, the new Iranian bloke, they're just waiting for vacuums to if you like, be created in order to fill them. They don't hang around. Of course not. So I think it's important. Yeah. I mean, that, of course, puts your finger on a particular issue here, which is, you know, it's one thing to judge people by how their behavior is as far as it affects your own country. Uh, quite different when you actually send them out to, to bat, so to speak, against uh, other countries who may have different standards. So we say I went pretty much more than higher than that. But I mean, in certain cases, like, uh, you know, Mr. Assad in Syria or, Mr. Putin or so on, and uh, the Iranian gentleman you mentioned. I mean, they do all have uh, blood on their hands, and uh, you may or may not think their cause was just, but uh, I don't think any of us do. So it's very difficult. Then you need, as you say, you want your leaders to have uh, sufficient backbone to be able to stand up to those uh, things, and therefore to have some principles by which to guide their conduct. Accepting, though, that in the real world, you're not going to get rid of Mr. Putin or, or President Xi or any of these people, we tried that with uh, Saddam Hussein. It didn't work out very well, trying to remove people who you don't like for whatever reason. So it's quite a different sort of uh, set of criteria you need. I'm, I mean, fine enough, I looked up that famous quote about um, 
diplomacy, which I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, which is, you know, an ambassador is an honest gentleman sent to lie abroad for the good of his country, which uh, I didn't realise this until I looked it up, was actually dates from 1604, uh, when it was first said by a gentleman called Henry Wotton, who was the UK's ambassador or the English ambassador to Venice at the time. And he said it while passing through uh, a place will be familiar to you, which is, I think it's pronounced Augs Augsburg. Yes, it's pronounced Augsburg. Yes, that's right. That's where he said it. And uh, he was, uh, at the time, he actually was uh, disciplined for his temerity in saying that. But I think we can all see that um, <laughs> there's some truth in that over the, over the years. There are countries, you know, you have to get up and say things and you have to go abroad and represent your best case uh, and so on. And you may not be something which you actually either believe in yourself or actually know to be true. And before you bring it up, my part, just to say, I know you're going to mention again, Mr. Johnson, our glorious prime minister, who, as you say, is an extraordinary example of someone who's able to shrug aside. He's, he's evolved his character in such a way that everybody knows about it. You know, he is a serial liar. There's no doubt about that. He's uh, lied about all sorts of things at different times in his own interest. But the fact that he's so brazen about it, in a way, kind of almost neutralizes it. He appears to be... Um, immune to the normal criticism that would apply to other people who, who say those things. Quite remarkable. And, um, you know, the question of, of the whole Brexit thing and so on will, will, will come up, I'm sure. But we had Mrs. May, who was doughty, and I think undoubtedly honest, uh, but ineffective. And then we have Mr. Mr. Johnson, you know, the chancer, the, the serial liar, who pulled off what, uh, you know, many people thought was impossible. But there may be a price to pay for that down the line, of course loss of trust and so on. So I think it's interesting. Yeah, loss of trust is not something that we will have to pay for down the line. Uh, loss of trust is, is well, well established when it comes to Mr. Johnson and his reputation abroad. But it's necessary to read the foreign newspapers in order to understand that. I mean, his reputation has been shot to pieces um, in Europe ever since the time that he was appointed for foreign secretary for about five minutes. I think it was by Mrs. May. And he went around lying from one place to the other. Um, I can always tell when he's lying, incidentally, especially when he's standing in Parliament, when he decides to tell a lie, because his speech accelerates. When he st starts talking much faster than otherwise, you know that he's telling a lie, which is quite useful to know that because um, it's like pre-advanced <laughs> warning. Uh, what you said about ambassadors being sent abroad to lie if, in the interest of their country made me think immediately of recent interviews that we've heard, and I'm sure you have heard, um, interviews of the Chinese ambassador to the UK, who is a, a, a good-looking man. He's dressed well. He wears tailor-made suits and and elegant ties. He speaks very eloquently. But the things he says are quite amazing. When he's asked about what about the detention centers for the poor Muslims up in, in the northwestern province, he will say they, they don't exist. And in as much as they do, they're rehabilitation centers for these poor people who need to have better integration into the, into the system, into the society and so on. And everyone knows, the listener, the interviewer, the man himself, everyone knows that it's a complete fabrication. But the man will come back the following week with another interview and he'll say exactly the same thing. And so I think in 1601, uh, your ambassador to Venice was 
was quite right, was very honest in that respect. It hasn't changed. Yeah, apparently he meant it as a joke originally. It, would, it was uh, it's something he wrote in a visitor's book in Latin, believe it or not. Uh, he meant it as a bit of a joke, but uh, obviously, you know, when you write things down, well-known saying, if you write things down, you know, they tend to get taken rather more seriously if you say them. And, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, Boris Johnson is very good at now is he doesn't really write anything down. So it's all just words. And he comes up with these extraordinary kind of explanations. I mean, his history of lying goes back way, way beyond being foreign secretary. I mean, his first newspaper job was on The Times, my old newspaper. And he basically made up a quote and then told his editor, who defended him initially, oh, well, I thought everybody did that. That's just what everybody does around here. And <laughs> he got fired for that. Uh, but then got taken on by the Telegraph, and um, when it was owned by uh, Conrad Black, the Canadian fraudster, I think we can say, <laughs> who was no great judge on these matters, presumably, he told him when he was appointed editor of the Spectator he wouldn't stand for Parliament while he was doing editor of the Spectator, but he did. He just went ahead and did it and got forgiven, you know, because everybody always forgives him in the end for these uh, things. He said, um, the blessed sponge of amnesia has wiped the chalkboard of history. So that's a classic sort of Johnsonian response to what happened, you know. And then he's, you know, as we know, he's fathered a number of children uh, and so on and lied about that fact. I mean, again, you can argue whether that's relevant or not, but uh, he certainly did lie about it and so on. Uh, so he's got a long history of doing that sort of thing. But, um, you know, in a funny sort of way, people kind of warmed him. A lot of people warmed him because they think he's he's human like us. You know, he hasn't been set up on a pedestal as some great paragon of virtue who then turns out to have feet of clay, which is, you know, perhaps the other the other model that we see often in politics. You know, the people who appear to be uh, kind of highest virtue uh, turn out to have um, faults that we never knew about at the time. You know, Kennedy would be a good example, I think, probably of someone like that who wonderful public reputation turned out to be somewhat more mixed when you actually heard about what really went on in the court of JFK and so on. So, yeah, it's a very complicated issue. I don't know where it leads us, actually, really. I'm not really sure where it, where it takes us in the end. It's a tough old world out there, certainly when it comes to international relations. You want people with backbone, you don't, and they may have flaws. I mean, it's a very strange profession anyway to go into politics. I think we have to recognise that. It, it tends to attract people of a certain type. They tend to be risk takers. They're obviously interested in power, many of them. They're not interested in just doing good. They're interested in power because of the ability to do things. A number of them never seem to have any real idea what that is, however, when they get into power. Uh, they don't seem to have an agenda. Uh, they're not like they've got some mission in life to, to change things. Um, so they tend to attract a certain type of, of character, which is... Um, you know, by almost by definition, flawed. You, they know the rules of the game. It's, uh, you know, if you get found out, you lose. If you don't get found out, you win. And, uh, you know, you can go on through that for quite a long time. I find that aspect of it very interesting. You know, it would never occur to me to go into politics, even though I'd like to change the world in a way for better. But, you know, the whole, the, the whole reality of what you have to do in order to be a politician and to be a successful one you know, it makes demands that I think the great majority of people would not want to meet, even if they felt able to meet them. And therefore, you know, in a way, you get the kind of politicians you deserve in a, in a funny sort of way. The question I always ask is, which of the existing politicians or which politician of the last, say, 50 years will, will continue to be spoken and written of and will continue to be a household name in a 100 years' time, for example? Um, I, I am sure that 
Margaret Thatcher is going to continue to be a household name in in a hundred years. Um, I am sure that Boris Johnson will not be spoken of, at least positively or with respect, with respect, because you can disagree with somebody but still respect them uh, in a hundred years. I also think that since we've now gravitated towards making a comparison between an extremely um, respectable uh, prime minister in the UK and a prime minister in the UK where I think the word respect doesn't really fit. Um, I think that Mr. Johnson has embarked on a great big ego trip. I think that ego is a very, very important uh, ingredient of most politicians. They, for some reason, they like being in the limelight. For some reason, they like seeing their name in print or their face on television. Uh, it's not a sentiment which I can really... Well, I can understand it, but I don't agree with that. Um, so I think that the key here is who's going to talk about this particular individual or write about this particular individual in a 100 years' time. When Mrs. Thatcher came to power, when she became the leader of the Conservative Party in 1978, and then when she won the election in 1979, the UK was in a completely shambolic state. So it would be very surprising if somebody like Margaret Thatcher, who, you know, she used to make her husband breakfast, I think it was ham and eggs, every day at nine o'clock, every single day, all through her premiership. I don't think that one can have any doubt as to the conviction with which she entered politics. And the timing, of course, was perfect uh, because she was the right person in the right place at the right time, even though the next few years were very difficult because she had to conquer inflation and all the rest of it before things went into the right direction. You can't say that about Mr. Johnson. And to be fair, it's too early to pass a judgment. It's too early because this Brexit thing, obviously the Brexiters are cheering and they're still enjoying the, the buzz of being a free country and uh, the UK being no longer in, in, in the thralls of the European Union. But in terms of the bottom line, what happened to the, to the pound sterling's external value, what's happening to the rate of inflation, what happened to trade uh, imports and exports with the EU, I mean, that gives me no cause for celebration right now. But I grant you, Jonathan, it is early days, I grant you. And I grant you that they may be right, those people who, who look at it in a positive, from a positive perspective. But if I needed to bet which politician will we speak about in 100 years, is it Mrs. Thatcher or is it Mr. Johnson? I know the way I'm betting. Yeah, well, you may be right. As you say, it's early days. I mean, the guy has a, an ability to survive for a start. And we don't. And people say he hasn't really got the agenda. I don't think that's necessarily true. I mean, it's not just about the pursuit of power for its own sake, but that's obviously part of it. Uh, no question about it. And, you know, like many others, he gets off on that kind of particular idea. But he does have views about things, which I think on the whole, a lot of people find sympathetic. I mean, he's relatively liberal on, on many issues. And, um, you know, I think he, to, to an extent, he's taking his whole policy of trying to help the famous red wall in, in north of England, you know, the de relatively deprived areas. We have got a very kind of large metropolitan elite that just seems fantastically indifferent to what goes on in the in the wider regions of the country. So if he can do something about that, um, I don't know whether he will or not, but we'll see.
I should just say that. I mean, looking back over the great UK leaders, prime ministers, okay, I can think I could give you, um, you know, Gladstone and Disraeli, two very different types of people, uh, both of whom still talked about today. Uh, one of them almost a Puritan uh, in his behaviour, though not entirely. Uh, Disraeli, a chancer, you know, man who coined the phrase the greasy pole and climbed up it and so on, uh, an outsider who got to the top of the thing, but also very effective as a prime minister. Uh, and then beyond that, you've got basically the only ones people talk about now are Lloyd George and Churchill, both of whom have, <laughs> as individuals, had many, many character flaws. Probably the, the two most flawed politicians of our last 200 years of history. Possibly Johnson will, will compete for that title. But uh, they're the ones that people still talk about. I'm sure you're right about Thatcher, but bear in mind how Mrs. Thatcher ended. I mean, she was booted out by her own party and crucified on this policy of the poll tax, which everybody told her was madness. Uh, but, you know, I don't. I wouldn't say she was drunk on her own power, but she began to believe her own image that only she was right and nobody else was, was wrong. And she misjudged that completely, I have to say. So, but you're right, she will be, she will be remembered. I don't think many of the others will. Um, Johnson might, who knows? I mean, you just don't know. He, you know, maybe he'll turn out to be something we don't expect. But across Europe, I mean, the, the same question applies. We've talked about this before, I think, um, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, obviously the, the leaders of post-war Germany. But again, you know, the, you need a crisis to really show you're a great leader in a way, you know, without without uh, um, exaggerating that too much. But I mean, the you know, the, the post-war German miracle and the fact that they, uh, the way they behave was, was fantastic. Um, de Gaulle, well, who knows? I'm not so sure about that. A great figure, you know, he's still talked about. Um, who else? I mean... I imagine Mr. Cole will be remembered because of German reunification, though Mrs. Merkel, you could argue, has better qualities, maybe. Um, French presidents, well, <laughs> I mean, what can one say? I don't know. They haven't been a, a great crop of French presidents, I would say. I'm not sure Mr. Sarkozy or uh, Mr. Chirac particularly, you know, they all have things which they can point to, but I don't suppose they'll be particularly uh, remembered in times to come. And as for the Italian leaders, I'm, well... Perhaps, you know, less said the better, really. Well, the Italian leaders, there's a slightly different situation. <laughs> but what what you can say with regard to Italy, then we can talk about the other countries, but what you can say is that in Italy, funnily enough, I think I'm right that uh, the most successful governments were always the technocrat Sure. Um, when there weren't any government. When there wasn't a, an elected government. When there wasn't yeah. a government, yes. And and that's the case right yeah. now. If you look at the reforms that Mario Draghi has at least, uh, you know, lined up, th they are phenomenal, really phenomenal. Now, the question is, he has to pass them and then he has to implement them. But if he does succeed in passing them and if they, if they do implement them, then Italy is going to look completely different compared with how it looks now. So it's actually a very exciting moment what's going on in Italy. Um, and um, Merkel, I mean, undeniably, she's been around for 16 years. I think she's made a mark on the political situation in Europe. There's absolutely no question also because she's calm. Uh, I don't agree with everything she says and does. Um, but for, for somebody who grew up in, in communist East Germany, then to come... Uh, across the Iron Curtain and become a big political figure is uh, something which is has to be admirable. In terms of the French presidents, I mean, Monsieur Chirac, I think his claim to fame is that he sat in the Elysee Palace for something like, I can't remember how long, was it two long tenures or one long tenure? Anyway, he sat there for seven years, say, 
and did absolutely nothing. He succeeded in doing nothing in seven years. So that's some sort of achievement, uh, if you succeed in doing nothing for seven years. <laughs> um, but I'm thinking of the ones before, like Conrad Adenauer and people like that, who were really very important. The other day I listened to an old YouTube clip, an uh, interview with Conrad Adenauer, but it's very old. It's like from the 1960s or, or 50s. Um, Amazing, uh, amazing. I mean, no question of lack of, of integrity or of, uh, with a lot of vision, very clear in what he was saying. And it's a, it's a pleasure listening to people like that compared with listening to some of these clowns that we are obliged to listen to today. So there is a bit of nostalgia in me. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But as I say, everything has to be seen in the context of its times, unfortunately. And, you know, as we know, good peacetime leaders are not always the same as good wartime leaders uh, and vice versa. Uh, and so a lot of it is, is context dependent. And, you know, cometh the hour, cometh the man, or, or these days cometh the woman as well. Uh, and that's all to the good, I think. But I don't think we're ever going to see a, a generation of leaders who are all cut from the finest cloth, shall we say. I just don't think that's likely to happen. And uh, I just think that's partly, you know, the electorates keep on... Well, you, they could argue we don't have much to choose between. But I think it's also a question of we get a little bit what we what we deserve. And, uh, you know, maybe people are too aligned to parties, you know, particular parties rather than to individuals. And maybe they should take more time thinking about the individuals who are there. Um, I mean, Monsieur Macron is a good example. I mean, he doesn't really have a political party or he had a movement which appears to be disintegrating but he was elected as a as an individual who seemed to strike all the right uh, all the right noises for the for the time um, but will he turn out to be a success will he be uh, remembered in years to come i think it's too early to say but but who knows what do you think well i i think that that depends on whether the big picture that i'm going to conclude uh, by describing in a few words is right or not, which is that if you look across the whole of Europe, and I'm including the UK in this, you've got on the one hand a drift to the right. The old socialists are one after the other dropping off their perch. So if you like, if you're not a socialist, like uh, I'm not and you are not, then we would welcome that. But on the other hand, the direction is seemingly to the right, if you like, to the centre-right rather than left. But on the other hand, the policies that are being enacted by these centre-right politicians, I mean, there's not a lot of difference between their policies and the policies of the left-wing politicians or centre-left politicians. I grant you that in certain key things, somebody like Boris Johnson is more um, liberal and, if you like, is more tolerant and in, in areas where the previous left-wingers were clamping down. And I grant you that, and that's a, one of the very few good things about him. But when it comes to the economy, whether they're right or left or centre, it's all spend, 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 tax, tax, tax. And there, there's no difference between left-wing and right-wing. And that's something that I do lament because it's not you or I who are going to pay the price. It's our children and our grandchildren who are going to pay the price. Indeed, and that's, uh, of course, true. And I think that uh, what is disturbing about the current situation is there does seem to be uh, an intellectual failure here uh, to understand that, that, you know, the nature of what is uh, being proposed here uh, by parties of all sides, as you say, and whether or not that's valid or not. 
But against that, I think one has to set two other issues, just to conclude probably before we get too deep into these other controversial issues. But there are some things out there which I think are different. One is this issue of inequality, which whether you agree with it, it's inequality is widening or not. I think most people would agree there is a wider gap between the very wealthy and the less uh, fortunate than there was. And that may produce political results we don't like. Uh, that's one thing. And then secondly, is this big issue of climate change hanging over the whole uh, continent, the whole world, in fact, uh, that may require solutions that uh, uh, that we're not very well placed to deliver. But maybe we should leave those issues for another day. Maybe the great leaders will, will arrive to, to solve these problems in a way that doesn't damage uh, everybody else. But I'm not entirely confident. Well, Jonathan, since we've, <laughs> since we've run out of time, although we could go on for another hour, I'm going to send you an email today of a book review for a book that's about to come out in America, written by an, a young Indian man whose name is completely unpronounceable. I'd have to look it up again. Uh, but he's the age of once of our sort of children. It was, um, and the book is called Woke Inc., And I advise you to go onto the Wall Street Journal, seek out the book review, read it, and then one of these days, online or offline, probably offline, we will discuss that subject. Very good. <laughs> well, as we say, as this is the Moses and Methuselah podcast, we'll do it from the lofty heights of, of many years under the belt. And <laughs> uh, we'll try and engage with those who are perhaps of a slightly younger generation who have different views about the world good idea. You have been listening to the Moses and Methuselah podcast, hosted by Jonathan Davis and Peter Silen. These podcasts are independently edited and produced. You can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels or by signing up on the Moneymakers or Eminem podcast website. Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice.